Welcome to Mentoring Moments. Mentoring Moments is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast. It is composed of clips taken from Jason's one-to-one and group mentorship sessions. This is my first, uh, first visit, so I haven't had anything lined up. I had expected to be a fly on the wall. However, I'm certainly willing to contribute straight up. I'm, my role is changing where I am now. Jason, I know we spoke years ago. I'm not sure if you remember you'd expressed a displeasure on the offering of Bolaro and the history of the product there. And we've since undergone quite a bit of change. We spent time during the pandemic updating things and I'm moving into a partner management role. And so I'm very interested in, we see the future of, of the platform as a uh, as being partner-based. Those integrations are really what provide value these days. These joint marketplaces, everyone has an app, co-selling, selling directly through a partner, all the opportunities and the ability to co-sell to extend your team and what it means to structure those programs and even build an ecosystem and the maturity model around that is what interests me here. I know that you've been an advocate for integrations and, and the opportunities there. And so that's that's what I'm looking at is best practices of, of partnerships, potentially alerts, potholes in the road. I've seen a few things get a little bit frazzled because they were forced over the years. I'm also looking to change the nature of how I interface with folks. I was mostly a back office person, and now I'm looking to clean up my act, put a face towards the public, make videos with face-first videos, and present the product alongside it with a with a face. And so I've got to set up my kit, get my <laughs> got to get my lighting right, all of it. And uh, so this is really my first toe tip. I just started this role January 1st. Yeah, you no, know, I definitely do. I remember we spoke. I, yeah, it's probably going back at least a, a year and a half now since we had our conversation. And look, it wasn't our conversation wasn't so much me having a dig at, at Valaro. I think it was more about. And for those that don't know, Valaro is a live chat platform, but it does quite a bit more than that. But it's it's essentially a live chat first form. And certainly, when we first implemented <clears throat> Netsuite at HealthPost, we were looking for a live chat platform that had a fully native integration with. NetSuite, because what you want ideally with your live chat platform is you want it to be able to integrate two ways with your CRM or your help desk platform, whatever it is you're using effectively as your customer facing help desk platform. And we were using NetSuite CRM as our help desk platform at HealthPost. And one of the keys is you need to be able to to pull in for the chat operators. You need to be be able to pull in things like order history. You need to be able to pull in real time a lot of information from your systems of record so that they actually know which customer it is that they're speaking to at any given point in time. So they've got a full 360 degree view of that customer. Then secondarily, what you ideally want to do is you want to have your live chat transcript automatically sync back in real time or near real time, at least when the chat ends, you need that to sync back to your CRM. You need that to sync back to your help desk platform. You need to sync back to whatever your customer system of record is. And the reason why you want that so that whenever somebody has to refer back to that record, say it's a customer service person, help desk operator, whatever it might be, you don't want the customer. And, and as a result of that, you, you need data flowing bi-directionally with any live chat system. And so I think that was one of the key things we were talking about is the need for the, all these standalone live chat platforms. So somebody like a gorgeous now has really stepped up the game and stepped up the expectations of an integrated help desk, live chat, full end-to-end sync with both e-commerce, ERP, other operational and transactional systems, and bringing it into a nexus to where you are then able to more easily run things like bulk analytics across customer behaviors, contact preferences, 
things like that. So when you're looking at cost to service a customer, you need to take into account, for example, how many times on average do they contact us per purchase, right? So if one customer contacts us 0.5 times per purchase and another customer contacts us three times per purchase, well, obviously the cost of service to the person who contacts us more per purchase, it's, it, they're more expensive. They're more expensive to service. And so we need to be able to segment them in or out of specific segments when we're marketing back to them and when we're remarketing to them. And we also need to be able to segment by contact channel because to any business, if you chat operators, for example, can usually operate up to maybe three or four live chats simultaneously. So the cost to service via live chat is very cheap compared to phone where you can only talk to one person at once or email where you can only respond to one person at once. And the contact preferences by a customer also matter in terms of segmentation. And so unless you've got all that data coming into a CDP or a CRM and you're actually doing segmentation meaningfully based on cost of service and very difficult to get a holistic picture of cost of service without unified systems that are sharing data back and forth. And that comes down to even things like returns and exchanges and all that sort of stuff. So obviously the customer with the higher return rate versus a lower return rate has a higher cost of service and those sorts of things. So these systems, while they were all, almost always designed to operate in a siloed fashion initially, in today's world, it is just simply unacceptable for them to operate as standalone systems because you need the data in so many more places now. And so that's, I think, the primary conversation we were having, Mark, is the need for this seamless integration between operational and customer service systems so that we can have that 360-degree view of the customer at all times. Good memory. Yeah. And these days, we've moved to asynchronous messaging and all of that proliferation of channels there, too. So it's, uh, it's quite a bit. And it's, it's an interesting a new ball game. It is. And I think you're on the right track in terms of the modern way to reach out to potential customers, which is you need to be, as opposed to selling via social, which is what people have traditionally done in a BDM, BDR type role, that's how that's what they've done. And for example, on LinkedIn, 95% of their content has been selling content. It's been, hey, here's our new release. Hey, here's our new functionality. Hey, come chat to me if you need a live chat platform, whatever it is that you're selling. And that's not the way that, that people have tuned out largely. And I think it's an automated thing mentally and emotionally when you're scrolling through a feed, say, for example, on LinkedIn, it's very easy to mentally and emotionally skip over things that are very clearly advertising or marketing focused. And if I look back across the last five, six, seven years of my content on LinkedIn and on my podcast, et cetera, et cetera, I can't remember too many instances. In fact, I can't remember a single one where I've been openly selling. I'm giving information. I'm trying to educate. I'm trying to teach. I'm trying to entertain. I'm trying to help people level up. I'm trying to share what I'm learning along the way, both in terms of running my business, servicing customers, what I'm learning through industry media and industry news, what I learned from conferences that I go to and interactions that I have. I'm simply trying to share back to my community that's without this industry, I wouldn't have the career that I have. So I feel like you've got to send the ladder back down. You've got to send the elevator back down when an industry's treated you as well as this industry's treated me. And so that's why I try to do these things. That's why I do free mentorship. That's why I do all these things. Now, inevitably, when you are visible because of the sheer volume of content that you're putting out, by definition, that means you're in front of people's faces more. And by definition, that means typically if they need one of the kind of services that you provide, then hopefully you're top of mind or maybe the only name that they can think of when they need your type of services. And invariably, that will lead to business coming your way. But it's certainly never my goal with content. And so I think that brands and particularly SaaS platforms nowadays, they really need to understand how customers buy today. And it's not that linear process where they see an ad, they click an ad, 
they download a white paper, they submit a form, they talk to a BDR or an AE, and then they sign up. That's not the way that, that software buyers buy today. And yet it's a brave new world of, of content out there. And I think if your focus is, first of all, learning yourself, then taking what you've learned, educating and sharing with others, and then having zero expectation of that turning into business, but just knowing if you do the right thing, that good things happen and new relationships come out of that. That's what I've tried to do over the last four or five years. And it's, it's proven very successful for me. I get the vast majority of my business. I'd say in excess of 70% of my business comes through my LinkedIn content and people reaching out via DM and saying, hey, it looks like you, you might be able to offer us a service that we're looking for. Let's chat. Let's see if there's alignment. Let's see if you can help us. And then it goes from there. I do have a pipeline that comes from agencies and customer referrals and et cetera. But Really, a huge amount of that credibility building started way in advance through content that I put out in some cases years before that they remember, oh, I remember seeing that piece of content from you. I didn't need your help then, but I need your help now. Let's catch up and let's see if we can work together. So content is a very powerful magnet for customers. That's for sure. I was just going to say, I was going to add to that, that it's the content, it's the continuity, and it's also the personality. I've had, in fact, who just recently started a new project with a client that I first had contact with 10 years ago, and we were talking about a completely different set of solutions at the time that we were promoting, and he basically has just been on our newsletter and has received uh, regular communications. He's seen videos online and that established that trusted relationship. So the engagement we now have, the project we've just kicked off with this client is completely unrelated to what our initial relationship or engagement was about, but he's learned to, to trust and to see yeah, me in the market for 10 plus years and knowing that, okay, this is not a fly-by-nighter kind of guy who's not going to be here next year if we need support. Yeah, it's just that continuity and the quality of content and to build that personality and that, yeah, that trust, I guess. Trust is such an important thing today, especially. Yeah. And trust, I think, Mark, you make a very good point. I think trust is easy to say, but hard to earn and it's hard to create. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people that, whether that be because they job hop. And so you never know when that person's putting out content, you never really know who they're operating on behalf of or what they're trying to sell you next that can damage credibility and trust all the way through mm. to, again, if somebody's putting out content on a regular basis and 90 plus percent of it is selling content, then you tend to tune them out or mute them. At least that's what I do in my social feeds. So if you go to their profile and I'll either block them or I'll mute them because I don't want that flooding my feed with sales content. I want to be learning when I'm online and I want to be absorbing industry information, industry news, things that are of interest to me, I don't want to be sold to. And I think that that's pretty representative of the broader market. And so I think like what you're doing, obviously, with your content on social, your email content, et cetera, you are educating. Sure, obviously, your name, brand, your company name is at the bottom of your email. So it's very clear that you are representing your company. But the reality is that you're not putting out content through the lens of, hey, come buy for me, come buy for me, come buy for me. It's more like, hey, this is what we've learned in our 15, nearly 20 years of doing this stuff. But this is what we've learned. These are the gotchas. Here's the pitfalls. Here's how you can get a better experience through your integration layer, regardless of whether you go with us or you go with someone else. Here's some things you need to look out for. And here's some benefits you can get through a fully integrated system stack. And hey, if you ultimately need help with that, we can help as well. So I think it's that right. concept of, hey, I'm here to help, I'm here to teach, I'm here to educate, I'm here to entertain. And hey, also, if some business comes out of that, then that's great too. But I think it really comes yep. down to intent and motive first. 
because people call that, I reckon, a mile away. And if it's and if it's a thinly veiled sales pitch, I think it's really obvious really early on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That said, I think it's fair to assume that anyone who's out there putting their face out there, putting any message out there, that they are selling something. Yeah. And everyone knows that. I think no one really is fooled by the friendly face and whatever messaging <laughs> to think that you're doing it for charity. Yeah. Ultimately, we're all in business and we're wanting to help, but it's a way of helping. And that's, I couldn't agree more with what you've said is to share your experience, share your journey and the pitfalls that you've managed to climb back out of along the way so that other people can benefit from that. Yeah, perfect. Adam, I think we can, I think we can safely turn it over to you now. If you've got, if you've got anything <laughs> that popped out of uh, what we've been discussing or anything okay. that, that that's come across your desk recently, that you'd like some thoughts on? I, it's difficult. I've got so many questions at the moment. I'm effectively a, a bicycle mechanic who's decided to start a software company. And so there's pitfalls and lots of steep learning curves or cliffs, you might say. I'm learning as I go as much as I can. And we're at a point now, I guess, where we've developed a pitch deck. We've, we've created a proof of concept. So I've actually got a working proof of concept for this bike compatibility. We're effectively getting now a working prototype that we can show people and we're preparing ourselves for investment. My biggest, probably my biggest concern or open-ended question at the moment is around building that development team. And obviously I've got so many different options available to me in terms of employment versus contractors and local or at least New Zealand based versus offshore. And so for me, it's just a matter of not quite being in a position to answer questions that I've got now, but still trying to gather information so that when the time comes that I do essentially have to make decisions, I'm at least reasonably well educated. If you've got any insight into building a development team for a non-tech founder, I'd be happy to hear it. Same with you, Mark, if you've got anything to add. My recommendation is to find a technical co-founder. That would be my advice. I would always prefer that someone, sure, you can probably figure all this out yourself. The reality is it's not rocket science. It's managing people. It's building teams. It's getting buy-in for your vision. It's trying to build something that's commercially sustainable and viable. All those things are kind of general business skills. And if you've got general business skills, you can probably fumble, fumble your way through it. But I'll tell you one thing, though is that it's going to take you a lot longer and it's going to cost you a lot more because you because you always pay for learning in one way or another, whether that's yep. whether that's hiring someone with the skills or whether that's paying to develop this on your own dime. You're always going to pay one way or another. And so I think that you don't necessarily have to have a co-founder that's a developer. So I consider myself a very technical individual in our space, a very tech, my, my consultancy is very tech and ops focused. And I've been very technical for the whole duration of my career, but I'm a non-developer. So I'm a technical business analyst, solution architect, et cetera. And so I speak the language of developers. And so when I'm talking to developers, they have a natural respect for me, a natural trust in me that I know what I'm talking about because I speak their language. I understand what they do. I understand how they do it. I understand all of the tooling that they use. And even from a project management and systems management perspective, I understand the tooling that they use. And so they're never going to say something to me that that is completely 100% over my head. I'll at least be able to understand 80 to 90% of it. And so that generates a huge amount of trust pretty quickly with the development community. And if you don't have that, it's a little bit easier perhaps to be taken advantage of, say, for example, or overcharged, or if you have literally no idea 
how long it should reasonably take to code a piece of functionality. Then if someone tells you this is going to take six weeks, you can't really question it because you don't have that background. You don't have that experience. You don't have that frame of reference from previous projects to be able to measure up to what you're being told today. And developers being in such ridiculously high demand, being paid such ridiculous sums of money nowadays. Now, sure, the massive tech layoffs globally are starting to ease a little bit of that pain. And it is the labor market is starting to loosen a little bit, but it's still developers are some seriously high paid individuals. And so the reality is, and it doesn't really matter whether you're hiring them out of New Zealand, uh, Australia, India, the Ukraine, doesn't really matter where you hire them from, if they're good, they are going to command a significant, they're going to command a significant hourly rate or day rate or a project rate. And so what I would always recommend is that particularly if you are new to tech, finding a technical co-founder that you can work with, or at least a, at least an equity shareholder that can be an advisor to the business, I think is something that is going to help cut you to probably more rapid success or more, what I would say, more sustainable success. And they're going to be able to help build and drive the definition of what the dev team needs to look like and what capabilities need to be there. And then they're going to have usually some connections in the community that they're going to be able to reach out to and say, okay, here's a community in New Zealand or Australia or China or wherever it might be that they're looking to hire developers from. They will usually have inroads into that community or they will already have, they'll already have either a subcontracting business that they have access to, or they will have access to dev teams and offshore teams that they've worked with before, or they will know people in the industry that they can reach out to, ask questions of, to build the team. And they will oftentimes have credibility in the places that developers hang out and that maybe they'll be in Slack groups or they'll be in Jira groups or they'll be in different areas and communities where developers hang out. And so by that definition, that it's easier for them to access developers at scale than you trying to figure out and maybe go through an agency or go through however it is you're going to go to try to secure developers. And there's Lemon.io and there's a whole lot of, of online services that are almost like SaaS services to connect you to try to, it's almost like matchmaking. It's almost like a dating website, right? Where you can go, you can put in your project details and then they have all the developers that are subscribed. It's like a two-way marketplace. It's like a marketplace of developers where you can go and you can kind of put your project in and they'll try to match you up with an appropriate group of devs, a dev pod effectively for your project. Now that can be really effective too, at least to kick you off to get to a place where you have a working prototype. Now, usually once you get to a place where you've got a working prototype and particularly after your pre-seed or seed round, then you are usually in a position that you need to bring those devs in-house as opposed to simply yeah. having contractors. You then are usually at a point where you actually want those in-house resources and you want them fully dedicated to your project because anytime you have a subcontracted dev pod, for example, it's pretty easy for them to move on to other things that are maybe more profitable for them or easier from a time zone perspective or easier for them to deliver against, whatever it might be. It's just when you have subcontractors, I'm not saying that they're flakes, but I'm just saying it's easier for them to pull out than if they're only working for you and they're solely focused on your project and you're usually going to get better results. But to get to a prototype, absolutely work with a contract dev pod and get yourself to the place where you can show some sort of functional working prototype and go out, maybe get some investment, maybe even get some beta customers, to, even if they're not paying. If you're trying to find product market fit, regardless of whether a customer is paying or not, if you can have what's called design customers or beta customers that are in the ecosystem, they're using the product, they're giving you feedback, 
they are telling you over time, hey, I would pay X dollars a month for this product, or I wouldn't pay for this product at all, or you would need to add this piece of functionality for me to want to pay for the product. If you can get people using your product, even in a limited beta, that is going to be the thing that is going to catch investors' attention. That is the thing. It's not, hey, I've got this great idea, or hey, I've got this great prototype. No, it's I've got 15 people or 10 people or five people or two people using this product in their business on a daily basis. They're giving me regular feedback, and this is going to help us create our dev roadmap for our product. And it's going to help to inform to make sure that we're finding the best product market fit we can over time. That is what is going to impress in VC investors primarily. Yeah, and effectively, that's our model at the moment is the prototype that we're working on and the proof of concept that we've already done is effectively to then go to customer, a particularly large customer that we've got a, an inroads with and talk to them about a, an agreement to do some beta testing on their website. Yeah, and then this idea of subcontracting to get that beta test up and running is definitely one that we've considered with employment being a little further down the track. I did come across a number of Firms, software firms that were offering like a tech for equity kind of deal. I've spoken with one of them in depth and they're interested and they appear to have capability. But yeah, for me, it's that translation. It's that understanding of do these guys say they've got the capability, but do they really? The scripting language they're using, is it the right one? Are they talking the right kind of database for what we need to do? And for me, it feels a little uncomfortable to be in that position because I've always... If I need to know something, I'll find it out. And effectively, coding and development is such a broad kind of subject matter that I find it difficult to get that broad understanding in the time frame that I really want it. Yeah, I think your idea of a tech co-founder of some description, whether they be an equity co-founder as an individual or an equity co-founder as a software development firm is a good one. Cool. Yeah. Look, I think you're on the right track. Sounds like you're sounds like you're thinking in the smart direction. And like you say, I think if you're non-technical, it does leave you somewhat vulnerable to being taken advantage of, particularly if it's a, say a dev agency and their tooling may not be the best. It could be, but it may not be. And it makes it difficult for you to even ask the right questions if you don't know the questions to ask and to help prevent yourself from getting taken advantage of. And so I think that, yeah, having a technical co-founder or someone that you trust as a technical advisor, maybe even it's just a board advisor that you can ask questions of, that you can say, hey, can you sit on this meeting? Can you help me ask the right questions? Can you help make sure that it's like the old concept of the mechanic that tries to take advantage of women because they think that women don't know anything about cars. It's the same Your kind of thing. It, it may, or not be, may or may not be true. Plenty of women know more about cars than I do, but the natural assumption by mechanics is women don't know anything about cars, so I'm gonna try to take advantage of them. And if the woman doesn't really know anything about cars, then maybe they try to tell, sell her blinker fluid. But it's those kinds of things. I think that's the kind of situation you never want to find yourself in. You never want to find yourself in a position where you're an easy mark. And not because sometimes there's lots of agencies that are absolutely above board and totally trustworthy and they do great work and they have great intent. But there's plenty of agencies and even developers that, that have been opportunistic over the last few years as tech has really risen to be almost the gods of, of our life. The reality is there, there's a lot of people that are just purely opportunists out there. And I think you just don't want to become a victim of the opportunists. You want to be able to find the people that are trustworthy and that are really worthy of your investment, of your business. And that's really what we're trying to get you to. Yeah, agreed. Definitely. Yeah, so the big question is when you say find, 
a technical co-founder, that's a difficult thing. And it's a matter of, again, having that understanding of where to look, what questions to ask and who to talk to and who to believe and who not to believe. And for us, it would be fantastic if we could find somebody that shares our passion for bikes and shares our passion for our product and our vision for our product. And maybe it's just going to take a little longer than I would hope. But yeah, I, if you've got any suggestions on where to look and, you know, how to find these people, feel free to let me know. I think the best place to look is honestly LinkedIn really is. It is apart from some of the local universities through their computer science department or things like that. I I had a couple of kids, or not kids, I guess they're in their early 20s, which to me is still a kid because I'm old. But, but we had a couple of, I had a computer science graduate from Auckland Uni reach out to me. This is going back about a month or so ago now. And he and a couple of his classmates have built this new technology, this new AI-driven technology. Can't share it yet because it's not commercially available. But basically, they're going to be working in the podcasting space and they're going to be using AI to heavily disrupt the podcast space. And he wanted me to jump onto a quick demo. He had a, he had a very early alpha version. He wanted to show me, get some quick feedback. We spent a half an hour on a call together. I gave him some quick feedback. He's now into his beta version. It's getting better very fast. They're smart guys. They've coded this thing up in like under a month. And so sometimes people like that of that age don't necessarily get the credit they deserve for uh, having their finger on the pulse of culture, of current culture and trends and things like that. And so sometimes they have a view on things that maybe directly contradicts our own just because we're older, just by definition of the fact that we're older. And we base a lot of things based on what we've seen before and the patterns we've seen before and the patterns we see we think are repeating now. We try to overlay that experience with current experiences. And not that isn't valuable. I think gray hairs on a team are super important and super valuable because they can see things coming down the pipe that, that young people don't see. They can see the train wreck before it happens sometimes. So I think that having a blend and sometimes going to local universities, talking to some of their graduates or talking to their department head of computer science or whatever and saying, hey, do you have any fresh upcoming talent that you think are standout here that I can get in touch with, maybe start working with on a project that can help them as part of their on-the-job learning, as part of their CS courses, computer science courses. But there's lots of ways to do this. I don't think there's any one immediate answer, but I can tell you that looking to the youth, highly technical youth, can be don't overlook them just because they're young because some of these kids are freaking hell they are super super switched on and they know yeah. what the market is looking for yeah we've certainly found that there's a company in christchurch called partly who have developed an automotive parts compatibility database we've connected with them and had had a number of conversations with them and they focus very heavily on graduates because they wanted fresh ideas. They wanted people who weren't afraid to embrace something wild and out there and new and effectively they've come up with a fairly unique design that is fairly bleeding edge and they're attracting talent now. They're at a stage where they're growing quite quickly and they're now attracting talent because obviously they've taken that approach. And I guess one of the things that I didn't want to do or I wanted to avoid was talking to people or employing developers who essentially were building the same old thing that in five or 10 years' time was going to need to be rebuilt because it hadn't been built flexible or agile. And yeah, I'm definitely interested in talking to people who have got some fresh ideas on that front. Yeah, and look, I think you can also look at some of the no-code platforms like Bubble, even something like Airtable. There's a few different technologies now that are SaaS technologies that allow you to build apps on top of their underlying SaaS platform that Bubble's 
no code, low code development environment. Same with same with Airtable. I've got a got a guy that I know really well in the UK. I've known him for a number of years. He's worked in he's worked in the industry for a long time. He's gone out and he's got his own consultancy running now. And he's finding that in much of his consultancy, he also is a is an Airtable partner now. And what he's finding is that a lot of the brands he's working with, they'll have some functionality in the business that is totally unique to them. And it doesn't warrant necessarily going out there and trying to find a SaaS platform to meet that need because any SaaS platform they find off the shelf typically is overkill for that function in the business. It's a bit unique to them. It's a bit specialized. And so what he's finding is bespoke apps built on top of Airtable are oftentimes the better way for his clients to go in certain cases because where they might spend, they might spend three months in development and it might cost, say, a year's worth of the cost of a single off-the-shelf SaaS platform, then they own it. And they're not going to pay a very small fee for the Airtable fee. They're paying the very low fee, but it's a fraction of what they'd be paying for an equivalent end-to-end SaaS platform for the function that they need. And they Mm. own it. They own it. It's a custom piece of software for them. So we're starting to see the market go back to a little bit more bespoke software than what we ever had before, simply because there are now platforms out there that allow us to build those quickly and very inexpensively, whereas before, completely bespoke development was a fortune. It created massive lock-in to the developers that built the software. It wasn't built on a platform. It was Everything was bespoke. But now we have this hybrid model where we're building bespoke applications, but they're on top of off-the-shelf SaaS platforms that effectively provide the infrastructure and the databases and all of the bootstrap UI components and all that. They provide all that out of the box. And really, all you're doing is you're building an application on top of their platform. And so I I think that's a model that can work really well for a lot of companies nowadays where they need something quite specialized. And to try to do that using an end-to-end off-the-shelf SaaS platform, it's just not going to work for them. It's not able to be tailored enough for their specific use case. So it's better Mm -hmm. for them to build something custom. But again... They want to build it in such a way that it is extensible, it is expandable, it leads to rapid development times, rapid prototyping, rapid iteration, that sort of thing. So definitely no-code, low-code platforms to build these type of applications on are becoming very popular. So I wouldn't look past that either. Look at the possibility of building at least your first prototype out on something like Bubble which is going to get you to market really quick. They'll provide the backend database. They'll provide the UI components. They'll provide all of the customizations, for example. If this is to work with both iOS and Android, say, for example, then they will have the ability to compile the app that you build on their platform for both of those target platforms. And so those types of things, I think, can help you accelerate your development as opposed to 100% of it being bespoke. Yeah, cool. I'll have a look into that. Mark or Christine, anything anything else from you guys that you wanted to bring to the table today? Oh, no, it was fascinating here. You were talking about the development, perfect developing an app. And so we are too. We started developing an app ourselves as well. And I'm told to switch from ClickUp to Jira. Oh, yes. I'm in the process of doing that. Yes. Yes, yeah. Jira. I have a love-hate relationship with Jira. Yeah, I, I look, I <laughs> love the Atlassian suite, but I also love to hate it at the same time. It was designed by developers for developers. And even setting up workflows inside Jira, it takes really a developer to, to set up most of those workflows. And I just wish it wasn't as complex as it is. And it can get very expensive very fast as well. 
So there are other uh, there are other project management platforms out there that I think easier to use nowadays. That's for sure, and certainly a heck of a lot cheaper. But Jira in particular is so heavily embedded in the development community that you, as a user, it's not too bad. So long as your development team has set up all the workflows and processes and how to handle handle sprints and epics and all the other things that they need to manage as a dev team, as long as they set all that up, and then all you do is use it and fall in line with what they've set up, then it's not too bad. That's it. <laughs> I'm gonna be running parallel. Yeah, development. This should be interesting. Yeah, I, look, I know a lot of dev houses that use. They will use two systems, so they'll use a customer-facing system, and then they'll use like the developer-facing system, and they'll use Jira, and they'll use Bitbucket, and they'll use all the Atlassian suite for all their internal stuff and uh, resource allocation and, and sprint planning and all that sort of stuff. They'll use that internally, and and then they'll use something like an Asana, or they'll use Monday, or they'll use something else that is is more customer-facing that the customer can actually understand oh, and, I know. and easily use. No, a, yeah, and as a I don't like them complicated. No. Yep, totally understand. I have found that actually what can really work well is that's customer facing in terms of being able to see a project workflow, even creating out test plans is smart sheets. Something as simple as smart sheets can work super well for customer facing stuff. And they love it. And you know, I do. And I use Google Sheets all yeah. the time. Yeah, Yeah, smart sheets is cool in that you can create really rapid, basically you can create really rapid Gantt charts out of just tasks in a smart sheet. It can show you effectively a Gantt and it can can auto convert all the tasks that are independent, interdependent on each other. If you create a task with a subtask underneath it and you basically just indent that task in, it shows that it creates that as a dependency underneath the parent task. And then all of a sudden you can start to see based on task assignment, whether it's assigned to a person or a group, you can immediately see in the Gantt chart what all the dependencies are and where the timeline starts to fall based on the due dates. Yeah, I like Smartsheets. I think it's really cool. It does stuff that that I use Google Sheets a ton too, but Google Sheets doesn't have the kind of more project no, man- management-y kind of functionality that something like a Smartsheets or a Monday or something or a Sauna or something like that has with the, uh, with the ability to create Gantt's, which a lot of people are visual in nature. And so seeing a bunch of dates in a column is not, always very helpful for them. But when they start to see it in a visual workflow, then they go, oh, okay, I get it now. I see we need to complete this piece before we can move on to this piece, before we can move on to this piece. And here's how all the timeline is starting to weave together. Something visual is usually helps people a lot. Yeah, it's people how to understand ClickUp really quickly. I have my method of madness of um, doing that with my clients. And that's why I'm just kind of reluctant to move away from ClickUp to Jira with the client. So. To prove up for the developer team and then you know to click up for the client facing. Yeah, the downside of that, the downside of that is that the account managers do a lot of cutting and pasting. So they, they for example, oh, yeah. if, if a customer submits tickets they through the customer me. facing <laughs> system, yeah, and then you've got to, then you've got to double they handle that. You've got to create a corresponding ticket in Jira, and then usually you take yeah. the Jira ticket number and put it into your customer facing system so that you know how they're linked. In some cases, what you can do is you can, obviously, if you're working with developers, then they're developers. And so almost all of these customer-facing platforms that are really customer-friendly, they'll have an API. And so what you can usually do is you can have your developers code up a little bit of middleware that just sits between your customer-facing product and Jira so that automatically, for example, when a ticket comes into the customer-facing system, it automatically creates a corresponding ticket in Jira underneath the correct 
client based on a matching email address or account name or whatever it might be or account ID. And that I've seen that work really well as well, because when you have account managers that have to do all the translating backwards and forwards, and maybe a developer will make a comment in the Jira ticket, then you got to copy and paste the comment out into the customer facing system so that they can give feedback. So yeah, that's it, what I said. I said to the guys, I said, hey, guys, you're musicians. You figure it out. I'm sure you can figure out a code or some automation that can make it work. Not my job. That's right. That's right. Put it back <laughs> on them for sure. If they if they love Jira so much, then they'll make it work. They'll figure out how to make it oh, work. Oh, yeah. They do. <laughs> Good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. Yeah, no, th- these are all fun things that I've had to deal with many times in, in, in my career because developers have a certain suite of tools that become common and endemic in the industry. And those are, they become very entrenched very fast and it's really hard to get them to change. They're really, once they take the time to deeply know and understand something, even down to the language that they use, their preference of database, their preference of different technologies, it's, you know, some are very aggressively learning new things because they don't want to get left behind and they always want to be at the bleeding edge of everything. But then you have just, it's like in any walk of life, you have the certain people that are the early adopters of everything. And then oh, you yeah. have the people that then you have the people that are just quite happy to stick with what they know and it's what they're comfortable with. And it's the same with developers. Right. At the end of the day, they're human beings, even though they seem like aliens half the time. And and <laughs> that's not derogatory to devs. Some of them are truly aliens in the best possible sense of the term. And in fact, I got that term from a developer who told me, don't think of us as normal people. We're not, we're aliens. And that's, <laughs> oh. how, you to, that's how you have to treat us. So yeah, I love devs. I get along with devs. I have tremendous respect for devs, but man, are they a unique beast. Yeah, they are, they are. I love them too. This is a great conversation. The experience is different, but we all have the same thing in common. But when it comes to that, Adam, that's quite a, seat you've got before you getting started in that manner. One thing I did want to contribute, I've been involved in different organizations at different levels, but never at the very ground where you are, where you're you're building a prototype and you're contracting for its delivery. But one thing I will say is that, and this is around the development story, is the developers are the talent and they are people. They need to be coddled and nurtured, and they need to have the freedom to to engage in flow, to deliver, to get to get that philosophy going and meet those targets week over week, and to feel right. And there's so many influences around that. I agree with Jason's assertion that you'd want to have a you need to have an in-house tech leader. Maybe you might want to consider attracting a, a young gun who's developing and who's got a doesn't want to get locked into the corporate maybe structure, but is looking to build. And it's a tough search, but that has always been my experience. Is the um, there's a lot of running interference, focusing on unique needs. They're different, but then they're the same in some ways. And also being able to call them out because they do have very firmly set belief systems that may be in contradiction to what you truly need them to do, or maybe the software decisions that you want to perpetuate open source versus Microsoft or whatever it may be. And it's tough because you've got to be able to influence to, from the point where you're convincing them that this is the path we're taking and this is why we're going to do it together because they need to buy in or they won't be there and then they'll be you'll have a attrition but good on you it's a great it's a great undertaking yeah have and you, it's I'm sorry, sorry Kristen. have you read the, yeah I, have you read the book called yes okay all right yeah it's a i think i'm in a slightly unique position here because maybe not in the bicycle industry the problem we're looking to solve 
is a huge problem and it's a very well-known problem. And we've kept our cards close to our chest a little bit because what we're doing is quite an obvious thing and nobody's done it yet. And we do have some legitimate concerns around letting the bike industry know what we're doing because we feel like there are plenty of people out there who will have that light bulb moment and think, oh, why didn't we do that? Why hasn't somebody else do that? We've got the resources. Let's just funnel them into doing that. And so what we're trying to do at the moment is develop the intellectual property, develop some prototyping, get a be the testing customer on board and then use that as our formula to to seek some capital to then build the product. And so okay. we're just, we're treading a little bit lightly and keeping our IP a little bit close to our chest and guarded in the hope that we can do some exclusivity on this until such time as we're ready to launch something. Awesome. It sounds like we you're well on your way, Adam, and it sounds like you know what you want to build. And I think that's the thing, right? If you are passionate about as opposed to a lot of developers that are, say, for example, start a startup, they really are just looking for, okay, do I see an, a gap in the market where I think I can fill that gap? Can I identify an opportunity that's a little bit blue ocean, that maybe it's a little bit cutting edge, it's going to challenge me, I think I'm going to like it, I think it's going to be fun, but it, isn't nece- it doesn't necessarily spring from something that they're already passionate about. Because particularly when they, if you're talking about a CS graduate, they're oftentimes too young to necessarily have a deep passion in anything yet. They will develop that and they will taste a thousand things over the coming decade. And then they'll eventually find something that maybe they're passionate about outside of coding. And then maybe they'll bring that passion back into software development at that later date. But when they first start out, they don't necessarily know what that passion is yet because they haven't tasted enough things yet. You're very fortunate in that you're doing something that you're already passionate about, that you're already yeah. in an industry that you already know, that that yeah. you understand the customer psychology because you are a potential customer, because you are from that space. And so I think that gives you an automatic advantage over someone that's just simply looking to hunt and kill. You know what I mean? Yeah. A very, very different mindset. And so I think you're starting out from a much better informed place because it's easier for you to have customer empathy because you are you would be a potential customer if this thing existed in the world. And Absolutely. I think that's always a better place to start if you've already got a passion. Now, sure, you can develop passions over time, no question about that. But I think starting from a place where you already intimately know the challenges of the market man, that gives you such an advantage instead of having to run a whole bunch of focus groups and getting people to getting a whole bunch of people in a room and asking a whole bunch of questions of them before you try to figure out what that MVP looks like, you know what that looks like. And so that is a much, much better place to be than starting from zero. Yeah. Yep. And we definitely appreciate that. I think our unique insight into the problem in the industry is potentially one of our values that offset our non-tech capabilities. And so we're hoping that investors are going to see that as a positive. But I do think that having that trustworthy tech buddy by my side is going to definitely be an advantage moving forward. Absolutely. And look, these are going to be looking for that too. So (laughs) investors will almost always be looking for a group of founders that have different skill sets within the business that you then don't go have to go out and hire, have it coming off the OPEX line. So usually what you'd find is you'd find somebody that was the business head, you'd typically find someone that was a bit more of the marketing head, and then you find someone that was a little bit more of the tech head. That's yeah. what the what an almost perfect trifecta of founders looks like to VCs. So always keep that in the back of your mind that sure, you might have to give up a little bit of equity for a technical co-founder and maybe a marketing-focused co-founder, but you, what you will make up for by having that almost perfect 
ready-made trifecta to go and talk to VCs about, it will make you eminently more fundable as a result. So a slightly smaller percentage of something is better than 100% of nothing that ends up going nowhere. So always keep that balance in mind as well, I think. If you'd like to get mentored by Jason for free, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll to the bottom of the page and click Get Mentored by Jason.